You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Real Vision Daily Briefing, live without a net. We've got the full band back together, Ed Harrison and Jack Farley. Welcome, gentlemen. Yes, thank you. Yeah, great to be here, Ash. You know, you say uh, the, the band back together when it's you and Ed. I don't know, you're the singer, Ed's the guitar player, but you know, I'm, I'm the bass player, and the full band is back when you got the bass player, right? <laughs> I, I play tambourine. If we're the Beatles, though, we're missing we're missing Mr. Weathy. You know, he's the he's the fourth member of the of the gang here. He, he's the drummer for sure. I, I'm sure I I will be on record as saying Max is not Ringo. Let's give him a little <laughs> bit of credit, guys. Uh, so, gentlemen, a lot happening, a lot happening in capital markets, a lot happening uh, in macro, a lot happening in crypto. Ed, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I know that uh, you want to lead it off with crypto. Uh, and we'll definitely get to that because there's a lot of uh, volatility there and we all have some thoughts on that. But the day started for me with uh, the bullish PMIs in Europe. You know, when I looked through the screen of things that were happening overnight, I saw a, a sea of green in Europe. And when I say sea of green, I'm looking at the uh, PMI numbers that came out relative to expectations. Uh, the only miss that I saw in Europe today uh, was for the German number, which was the German manufacturing number with a PMI of 64, down from 66.2 uh, with an expectation of 65.9. But 64 is still a great number. All of the numbers in Europe were in the green. They were all well into the 50s and the 60s. And this is all happening before they have a full reopening, before you know they're really fully along the, the, the way in terms of vaccination. That's very positive in terms of global growth. The only thing that I would say is uh, the specter of inflation definitely hangs over uh, because obviously you can have supply bottlenecks if not only the U.S. is going gangbusters, but then you add in you know, an impulse uh, to Europe. And we see that the number of negative yielding bonds in Europe has diminished significantly uh, even the, the, the Dutch 10 years now in positive territory, only in the Eurozone, only the, the German Bunds that I can see the 10 year is, uh, is in negative territory. So uh, a lot of things are happening in Europe. That's where I would start. And let me ask you this. Uh, first, I'll give you a quick quote here uh, from credit write downs. But Europe is coming back. These data points all tell you that. And what it's telling you is that European growth is going to play catch up to the US and perhaps even outperform. Boy, it's been a while since we've heard that. I anticipate more green in the weeks to come where I see downside risk in the US due to uh, the initial uh, stimulus package earlier this year. Let me ask you this, Ed, a little bit of context for people who haven't been following European markets, particularly people in the United States. You've given us the update for what's just happened uh, over the last day, last 24 hours or so. Give us the big picture of where Europe has been uh, since the beginning of the crisis of so the last 12 to 14 months or so. 
Yeah, so I think that uh, you know they they had the Cheshire Cat grin in the after the first uh, lockdown, you know, because they were hit hard uh, as was New York where you are. But when they reopened, they reopened in a very positive way relative to the United States. And so people were saying back in 2020, the Europeans they've got this. Uh, fast forward to the uh, the Kent variety of the uh, the mutation in Kent. And what we saw is, is that it hit the UK uh, first and then hit the rest of Europe hard at a point in time that vaccination was rolling out in the United States. So it hit the US not as hard. And so in the beginning of 2021, as the we started thinking about the reflation trade, the full reopening, Europe was getting crushed. They went into a double dip recession, the United States was able to avoid that because of the vaccination wave. Uh, so you fast forward to today uh, in May, and what we see is the U.S. speeding along to full reopening in a way that the reflation trade in January and February was anticipating and now is almost upon us. In Europe, that's delayed, relatively speaking. Uh, so the numbers that we're seeing today are, I would say, the equivalent of numbers that we might have seen uh, a month, two months ago in the United States. So the numbers that are coming out of the United States today are probably two months away in Europe. So July, August, that's when the full reopening of sorts will, will start to, to coalesce. So now's the time if you want to be, if you want to take your bets, you know, upside or downside for Europe, now's the time to, to take those bets. Yeah. Jack, how about you? Are you watching Europe? Are you looking at something else? What's on your radar screen? Uh, anything to add to Ed's points? Yeah, I think the PMIs today, Ash, were incredibly important. These purchasing managers index, again, a reading above 50 indicates growth, a below 50 uh, indicates contraction. Obviously, we're now in a huge reflationary spiral, so you're not seeing anything close to below 50. Um, but so as the German number, 64 below the 65.9 uh, that was expected, as, as Ed mentioned, that's for manufacturing. Um, but you know, I'd say that was a blemish on an otherwise spectacular pic, uh, picture for the economic data. And I'd like to draw attention to the U.S. services PMI, which was a 70.1 versus a 64.3. So that is absurdly high, indicating a remarkable amount of growth. The manufacturing uh, PMI that came out at 61.5, again, above expectations, uh, you know, you expect that that would um, be slightly lower than the services because the, the market for goods has been very vibrant during the pandemic. It's been the services that were really hit the hardest. Um, and, you know, I mean, just going back from what was it, last week's consumer price index, airline fares are up 10% uh, compared to the previous month. And truck rentals are up 16%. So you're, you're basically seeing, um, you know, uh, developing world inflation month over month in the things that really matter most in these services like, um, you know, airline fare as, as well as truck rentals. So I would say uh, today's data confirmed uh, the, you know, already very strong case that we're seeing, uh, you know, strong inflation. And um, so, yeah, what, what does it mean for bond yields? Who knows? Bonds barely buzz today. It's one of the least volatile days in US, the U.S. Treasury markets um, that I've seen in a long time. Yeah. And I'm curious, we're talking about Europe. Uh, we have some thoughts, and I know that you've been uh, thinking about this and looking into it and writing about it rather seriously, uh, about Unicredit. Let's talk a little bit about that story, explain what happened, and give us a sense of the significance in your view. Yeah, so the interesting bit is that, uh, so we're talking about upside here, both in the U.S. and in Europe, but at the same time, we had some news out of Unicredit. Unicredit's one of the largest, if not the largest, 
uh, uh, Italian bank, and they have these uh, these these sort of uh, hybrid securities where there's a provision in the security which says that if there's a loss because they want to have a buffer against those losses, they don't need to pay uh, the coupon payment for uh, uh, as long as they have those losses. And so Unicredit had a loss last year because of the pandemic. And so the new CEO decided not to pay the coupon payment. This, to me, points to downside risk. Yeah. And the reason it does is because you, you basically, you're always going to pay the coupon payment unless something seriously is wrong. So either this, this guy, the, the new CEO of Unicredit is, uh, you know, he is uh, really taking a, a, a wild bet or there's something underneath that tells you that at Unicredit they're having problems, that the, the pandemic has been so deleterious to their balance sheet that it's better for them to take the hit reputationally and, and forego the coupon payment uh, than to actually pay the money out. So uh, to yeah. me, it tells you that the European banking system, where you know there's less disintermediation from capital markets and much more of the credit growth that we're going to see in the full reopening is dependent upon that banking system, that there's still problems there. And so there may be some supply problems, supply of credit problems in Europe as they move towards the full reopening. And that's downside risk relative to the United States. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the nature of these securities, because I think most people uh, think of a, a bond default as being obviously uh, something that is incredibly uh, bad news, uh, not just for bondholders, but also for equity holders. Uh, but these are actually something called uh, COCOs, contingent convertible bonds. Uh, and for people who have been following this story about how European banks fund themselves, the interesting thing about this is that this comes from the 2011 vintage European banking crisis. That was the reason that these securities were created in the first place. Uh, and they were devised uh, because of situations where there could be significant uh, problems with the European banking system. And the idea was to have these sort of so-called bail-ins, a mechanism in the capital stack, in the structure itself, uh, to basically be a steam valve. Uh, and now that we've used it, I think it's surprising uh, that we haven't heard more about it, that it hasn't been a bigger story here in the U.S. Uh, I guess, you know, there's a certain degree of risk that's associated with this kind of event. Jack, I know you're following this story as well. Yeah, well, Ash, it's it's very strange. I, I don't uh, pretend to, to understand these. You know, Ash, I know you you used to work in municipal bonds, so you have a, uh, like Ed, you, you have a, a grounding in this, but I'm, I'm just sort of a, a spectator on the sidelines. But it's always struck me that these hybrid bonds, these uh, convertible bonds, they're neither fish nor fowl, and they can that can lead to a lot of confusion. Um, yeah. I, I saw the bonds trade today um, at just over 50 cents, 51 and a, and a half on the dollar, and that was down from 60 cents. So you know, it, you're, it was down a great deal, but the fact that it was priced at 60 cents on the dollar to begin with shows that the market was already pricing this in, that you had these contingencies. My question, Ash, is a, about a note I saw from an equity researcher that said that, oh, don't worry, they're still going to pay. Like they said, the bondholders, uh, you know, their fate remains uncertain, but the equity holders are fine because they are still going to pay their dividends. So, you know, my question is, if, if these convertible things are supposed to be a steam valve, as you say, between the equity holders and the bondholders to protect the bondholders, how come the equity holders aren't getting hit at all? It seems to me very strange. So, you know, I'm, uh, I'd love, uh, you know, some speculation from you as to, as to what's going on, because I, I don't understand this at all. I have a great answer to that question. I haven't the 
faintest idea. That doesn't make any sense to me either. I think, uh, you know, Jack, for uh, someone who never worked on a bond desk, neither fish nor foul is a pretty good way to describe these securities. Uh, to me, it's an open question. And I think the reality is we've actually never really seen this play out before. This isn't uh, the type of instrument that's been around uh, for decades. Uh, we don't really have a whole lot of, uh, of history to go on. It's kind of a weird thing. Ed, you've worked obviously extensively in the fixed income space. Uh, you write about it quite regularly in credit write-downs. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I'm still scratching my head to figure out where this is going. I'm just thinking about it from a, uh, a credit um, perspective. What happens, small, medium-sized businesses? Uh, you know, what does Unicredit's balance sheet look like? Why are they making this decision? We, we just don't know. Uh, it's, it's a new form of security. Uh, we don't know. We've never done dealt with a pandemic. We don't know what their balance sheet looks like. I mean, right. they've been hit hard. There are a lot of moving parts. We just have to see. Maybe it's a one-off. Uh, you know, it's it's an individual idiosyncratic decision, but I think that it's a red flag. So I look at it as a, an event risk that uh, we should take uh, seriously. Yeah, I, I think a red flag is probably putting it charitably. There's definitely something here, uh, and this is the this is the the you know oh, it seems like a potentially a warning sign. But maybe you're right. Maybe this is an idiosyncratic event. Uh, but at the same time, it it's it's got to be I think something that comes onto people's radar screens whenever you hear uh, someone missing a coupon payment. Obviously, it's a very significant thing. Whatever the nature of the security is, Jack, did you want to jump in? Yeah, yeah. Well, I just would would note that over let's say the past six months, really. The problem that has beset the banking system is that too many people are paying off their bills. There's not enough debt. You know, uh, obviously there were, the companies were borrowing a, a ton, but on the consumer side, it was marked by, um, you know, everyone essentially paying off their their credit card uh, bills. And I forget the exact number, but some, you know, hundreds of millions of credit cards were sent um, to, to doorsteps in the U.S. just because banks are very eager for that business. And then, um, you know, because they're, the companies have become so indebted. Um, there's really a question of, you know, where are banks going to allocate capital to make these loans? So perhaps, Ash, if you wanted to be charitable, you could say that uh, there, there's been a, a disturbance on the side of the force to too many to too many people not defaulting. So actually, this is a welcome thing. But I don't know. Maybe I'm looking at it through completely uh, strange, strange, strange lenses. Well, listen, I think that's right. I think jump in, Ed. Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, I was just looking at something, uh, you know, the European Central Bank. Uh, it, it warned two days ago about heightened risk to financial stability in Europe. So the picture in the U.S. is slightly different than the one in Europe. And that's why we're talking more about Unicredit. You know, they said on Wednesday in their financial stability review that uh, the uneven impact of the crisis meant that um, they become more concentrated in specific industries and countries in terms of risk. So you know, when you look at what the ECB was saying that, you know, a higher uh, corporate debt burden in countries with larger services sectors could increase pressure on governments and banks in those countries. And then you see literally two days later, Unicredit missing its coupon payment. The tie together has to make you think that there is something weird going on in the European banking system. And it makes me think back to uh, the middle of 2020, uh, when Roger Hurst was uh, talking to us about the European banking system as the canary in the coal mine, that he was watching that like a hawk. So yes. I think 
we should we should definitely uh, pay attention. Yeah, very well said. Um, you know, for me, again, could be an idiosyncratic event, but whenever there are crises, we always look back in retrospect and go, boy, there are these this this one little weird thing happened, and then this other little weird thing happened. I wonder why we weren't paying attention to it. Again, could be idiosyncratic. I would say uh, Jack Farley, neither fish nor fowl. Ed Harrison, it's a red flag. Those are two pretty good points uh, to wrap that conversation up on. So much else uh, happening in the market today. Uh, what do you think, guys? Should we jump in and start talking about crypto? Uh, can, can we, can <laughs> I know you I know, want to do it. I'm asking do? permission because I know there's so much more to talk about. Go ahead, Jack. What else were you thinking? Do you want to do crypto first and then the, the uh, Ford truck, or do you want to do, quickly do the Ford truck? Well, let's talk a little bit about the Ford truck. This was an article that uh, that Ed sent me last night, uh, and I thought it was really compelling. Ed, give us the context for this story, because it's really, I, I didn't realize how cool the specs were until you actually just told me about it today. So jump in and tell us about this. Yes, yeah, so, so I'm, I'm a fanboy of the F-150. Uh, you know, I know people uh, in Pennsylvania who drive the F-150. You know, that's the most important truck, the biggest selling truck uh, in America. Ford came out with a launch for the electric version of the F-150 yesterday. Uh, it's called the F-150 Lightning Truck, and it's going to be delivered in uh, mid-2022. Great things. People were very impressed. It was a very uh, good showing. And some of the numbers that they came out with, some of the little stats are amazing. This is a truck, 770 pound-feet, uh, foot-pounds of torque, 600 horsepower, zero to 60 in four seconds. Uh, it has this thing called a frunk, which is a, an EV term, you know, because there's no motor there, so you can load it up with, uh, with things in the vehicle. 300 miles in a single charge. Basically, this is an F-150 that is uh, an electric vehicle like Tesla. And this is a form factor, just to use a, a, you know, a, a term, that we we use in uh, in computer science, a form factor that people know. You know, yeah. my mother-in-law, as an example, she's bought the same car over a 15-year period repeatedly. You know, I think she's on her fourth iteration of this car. So this is a car, mm -hmm. the F-150, which is the the highest-selling vehicle, and now we're seeing a, a an incredible mm -hmm. version in the EV space. Yeah. That's a big deal. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this uh, is not just a, a popular car, it's a beloved truck. Uh, if you grew up where I did out in the country, uh, across the street from a cornfield, corn uh, the way 20-somethings uh, in finance as interns look at BMW 3 Series, that's the way people in the rest of the country think about F-150s. It's a beloved vehicle. And boy, zero to 60 in four flat, it is fast as a bandit. <laughs> yeah. And it hauls. I mean, it does everything you want an F-150 to do, but it, it has those EV bona fides. So yeah. uh, starting price is 40000 the starting price for the existing uh, F-150 is 29,000, but the average full-on, uh, uh, you know, when it when fully loaded F-150 is 50,000 now. So this is well within that wheelhouse, and it's also a direct competitor to Tesla. I mean, the way that I'm looking at this, to be honest with you, 
is through the lens of Tesla, because I look at Tesla as a optionality. Uh, you know, so when I think about uh, scenarios, I think about, you know, downside scenarios and upside scenarios, and you put them all together and it comes out to an option price, uh, which, is the, which is the stock price. What the F-150 is doing is it's taking some of the upside scenarios off the table for Tesla. It's right. telling you that uh, Tesla now has entrenched competitors which can uh, get into, uh, cut into its potential market share. Uh, and, uh, and we see this with Audi, with Mercedes, but you know this is a market that Tesla hasn't even gotten into yet. So I think that the upside scenarios for Tesla have taken a dent and uh, and it's something to be thinking about. Hey, Ed, one more question for you. Did you mention uh, the feature about it being able to power your house? I may need to get a driver's license again just for that. Yeah, I think, I don't know where I saw this. I'm, I'm looking for it. Uh, I have this article, but I heard that basically it can power your house during an outage for three days. <laughs> Ash, I wonder, can it, can it power apartments on the Upper East Side? <laughs> I doubt that, unfortunately. Hey, Jack, now that you jumped in, let me throw a question to you. I'm just going to play devil's advocate here on this. Uh, what about this idea uh, that markets have mispriced Tesla uh, and that, you know, you think about the, the big three here in the U.S. Uh, these are not companies that are just going to sit around and do nothing. Obviously, they're very large. Uh, it takes them time to move. But if you look at, for example, Microsoft, uh, which uh, missed out on the Internet, missed out on the cloud, uh, missed out on uh, cloud software services like Office, didn't translate well. They just kept working on it. It was a big ship. It took them some time. They iterated, and eventually they got it right. Is it possible here that markets may be mispricing to the downside uh, domestic U.S. auto manufacturers in a legacy sense uh, and overpricing Tesla? And hey, while we're at it, we'll throw in, what about international competitors, Volkswagen, uh, uh, Honda, Toyota? What are your thoughts? I think that's certainly possible, Ash. I, I think for the longest time it was, oh, can you believe Tesla has a larger market cap than Ford Motors, despite the fact it sells a small fraction of the cars? Then it was, can you believe it has a, it's larger than GM and Ford combined? Then it was, can you believe it's larger than Ford, GM, Volkswagen? Then it was, can you believe it's larger than ExxonMobil? And then it was, can you believe it's larger than every single traditional automaker combined? So I think that you know, it obviously was underpriced at the beginning because people didn't understand um, that it was a true leader in the space and that everyone was, was sort of just uh, fooling around at the beginning. But, you know, you know, I mean, the CEO of GM has made very clear that by 2030, she ex expects, you know, uh, the, the vast majority of GM cars to be electric. And the CEO you know, is funny. So it sounds like Ed, he, he really likes the story. He's filming at the mouth, mouth bullish because he sounds like he may want to splurge and buy one of these cars. But you know, I share a similar bias, but for a different reason, which is that the CEO of Ford is, shares my last name, Farley. His name's Jim Farley. Uh, no relation, although perhaps I'll just perhaps imply that he's sort of my uncle. So I'll be like, you know, pretend that I'm in, on the inside of uh, uh, Ford. But um, yeah, I mean, Ash, to be honest, I, I, uh, this is just my opinion. I think that you're absolutely right. If you see how Ford versus GM have been trading relative to Tesla since the beginning of the year, if not February, yeah. um, you clearly have seen a, a reversal of that trend that, of course, is related to the uh, you know, rotation from growth stocks. Tesla is, has a huge uh, multiple uh, to into uh, value stocks such as Ford and GM, which right. historically have been a, you know, not really a growing business, but now that they're electric vehicles, perhaps. Also, so if you want to really take the safe play and say, I don't know it's going to be Ford, I don't know if it's going to be you know Farley, Farley who's going to win, Farley or Elon Musk? Who knows? 
but you just want to bet on electric vehicles, which is, you know, it's, it's going to happen. I'm, I'm sorry to people who don't think it's going to happen. It is. Uh, you, could, you could invest in lithium miners. You could invest in um, cobalt miners. You could invest in rare earth miners, such as, uh, you know, neodymium, praseodymium, which is um, re required to power the, uh, the motor of every single electric vehicle, including not just lithium batteries, but also hydrogen-powered batteries. So uh, there's a lot to think of. You know, I mean, I've, I follow the, the Tesla um, stock pretty closely. That has not been trading well at all. Um, you know, if you were a seller of calls, you've done well. If you've been a buyer of puts, you've done well. Um, and if, you, if you've held the underlying stock, it, you know, it just it just hasn't done well. Uh, for you know, and then there's not to mention uh, Elon Musk's recent antics with regards to crypto. With, um, but yeah, there's there's a lot there. Boy, you said exactly. that you talked about crypto and you were talking about things not doing well because I'm looking at uh, the price of Bitcoin right now. You know, thirty five eight. And you know Ethereum down 16% in the last 24 hours. Dogecoin's at 34 cents. Uh, crypto ash. I mean, it's getting pounded. What's going on? Yeah, look, it's a great question. It's uh, obviously taking sub substantial losses here. Uh, look, we've been saying this all the time at Real Vision. Uh, there's something that's happening in the world that is a revolution right now uh, in terms of the way that. Uh, Things get done in terms of payment rails, uh, the potential for programmable money, uh, the potential for a digital store of value off the grid from central banks. All these things are very major factors in play. Uh, but let's be plain and clear. This is an incredibly, incredibly volatile market. Uh, if that's not clear enough, uh, let me say it this way. You can lose money investing in Bitcoin. Uh, obviously, the volatility of these assets is really incredible. Uh, I was reading some data uh, earlier in the day. Uh, I think I referred to it on an earlier show uh, from uh, from Rect Capital uh, that you know effectively the degree of uh, in the 2017 uh, bull market we had I think five to seven 30 plus 35 plus percent downturns in the price of Bitcoin. Uh, you know, we can talk about this from a technical factor, 38%, obviously a key Fibonacci retracement level, but these assets are incredibly, incredibly volatile. Uh, and people should think about it. They should understand that. Uh, when people are screaming at them on Twitter to BTFD, they should not feel bullied by it. You can be interested in this asset class. You can be passionate about the technology uh, without feeling like you need to step into a market and buy in uh, to a declining price trend. Of course, none of this is financial advice. Nothing that you're going to get from me or anyone else on the internet is financial advice because these are financial advice is by definition uh, information that you can't get uh, from a television or streaming news program. People need to understand their own risk tolerance. They need to understand their objectives. They need to understand their goals. And they should talk to a professional before making decisions about allocating capital. Yeah, definitely talk to your, to your IRA before you buy Dogecoin. <laughs> well, let me let me uh, posit this. Okay, uh, first of all, we know that uh, Bitcoin's broken through its 200-day moving average. So, yeah. uh, you know, just as Rao was telling us before, uh, really, you know, we were at oversold levels and we had a bounce. Uh, the the bounce that we had yesterday, which got us up to 41, 42 at, at points, that was needed because uh, you know we needed to wash out the weak hands. Uh, oversold levels, uh, the the price trend potentially therefore could stabilize. So we stabilized in the 40 to 42 range. But the reality is, is is that 40,000 on Bitcoin is again below the 200-day moving average. And now 
uh, we see price action, which shows us that that has significance from a technical perspective. So we're yeah. seeing uh, selling again. To me, that suggests that we're in a range where the next level of support is is where you want to look. And you know, from what I've understood, it's in the thirty to thirty-two thousand range. Uh, so we could definitely retrace all the way back to 32, which was the low that we bounced off of, and we could even go down to 30. Those are the levels that uh, that I'm thinking about uh, that are we're vulnerable to. And when we get down to that level, you're talking about a, a, a being cut in half or you know 55% losses. That's yeah. quite a bit more than 30% or a Fibonacci retracement of. Uh, of 38%. It's more like a 63% Fibonacci uh, retracement. Yeah. And let's break through those uh, those contents right there, because I think you make some important points uh, about the levels. So we broke through the 50-day uh, moving average at 54,000 uh, about, um, well, it looks like about, uh, about six days ago. And then we cracked the 40,000 level, which was the 200-day moving average, and we've just kept falling. Now, also, one of the interesting things about the technical analysis uh, on the digital asset side is there are a whole series of other indicators uh, that are sort of between technical indicators uh, in terms of technical charting and technological indicators, by which I mean things like the amount uh, of digital assets held in hot wallets on exchanges, uh, which demonstrates a willingness uh, of investors to more rapidly want to sell off assets. There are a whole series of other metrics that people who are serious about this space, I'm talking about the hedge funds here uh, who are participating in it, see. And these aren't yet standardized. So it's a very complicated market. Uh, and without really knowing what people are seeing on that side, it's also difficult to understand what some of the institutional investors uh, are looking at and thinking about doing right now. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, if I'm thinking about it, just the Fibonacci re uh, retracement levels. Then, uh, when we're talking about a uh, a thirty eight percent, the next uh, number to think about is fifty, and then of course sixty one point eight, uh, the golden ratio. So sixty one point eight percent, you know, that's a long way down from where we are now. But yeah. let me just say that when I think about it from that perspective, a it's much larger of a retracement than the numbers that we were talking about uh, before in the, in the last bull market. But secondly, it also undermines this whole network effect, Metcalf's law, that whole bit. Because the reality is, is, is that when an asset class collapses by that much, you really are at some point at a level where uh, network effects work in reverse. Hmm. No one's going to get into an asset that is falling, uh, meaning it's the existing people who are there. So by by falling this much, this quickly, really what you're doing is you're setting back the adoption level of uh, of the asset class. And that is negative in terms of the concept that you're benefiting from the network effects as people move over from the analog world to the digital world. So right. these are these this this amount of uh, retracement, is is dangerous in my view. Yeah, it is certainly not uh, from a short and intermediate term perspective, something that anyone who's invested in this space wants to see. Let me provide just another bit of context here from a price and timing perspective that I think is important. Uh, 32,000, uh, that is the number that Bitcoin was at on January 1st uh, of this year. So 
Another way of saying that might be what we've seen uh, relative to these sell-offs, which could be, uh, as you say, in the 50 to 60 plus percent range. Uh, one of the things that's important to note is the degree to which these, uh, these assets appreciated dramatically to the upside during this most recent uh, bull cycle in it. So it is important to note uh, that if you bought Bitcoin on New Year's Eve of 2020, you are positive for the year still. Conversely, a date on the Ethereum side, 16 April 2021, was the last time that, that Ethereum was trading at the current price. So some of these sell-offs are from massive high-based effects, um, which, again, isn't going to benefit you if you bought in uh, two weeks ago or a month ago. But we have to put in context the fact that the appreciation of price has been so dramatic uh, that the sell-offs are amplified relative to the high base that we were at, relative to the incredible appreciation in price that we saw, uh, you know, effectively effectively doubling uh, between uh, January one uh, and the high of about sixty four or sixty three thousand uh, in uh, in in mid uh, April. Another important point: these prices cannot be exact uh, because. There still is not a national best bid, best offer on the crypto side. So you can look at something, for example, on CoinDesk uh, and on CoinMarketCap and see two different prices, two different prints, particularly in periods of high volatility when there is a larger than usual inter-exchange delta or spread. Jack, I know you're also watching the crypto space. What are your thoughts on this? Well, Ash, I think I would have to agree with your final point, which is just simply base effects. This place, this space has gone up so much. I think it was about two months ago when Ethereum was you know, at about $2,000. It reached $2,000 for the first time. And I wanted to buy more because I was very bullish, you know, watching a lot of Real Vision crypto videos. But then I was like, oh, it's at all-time highs. And so I, I did buy some more and then obviously, you know, felt great. As Raul would say, felt like a god when I went up to above 4,000. But, you know, it's still at a higher place now than it was when, you know, I, I bought it um, uh, months ago. So I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I you know, uh, Bitcoin's at was at thirty-two thousand uh, on January first, as you say. Um, if you compound the return that you have from it where it is right now, and you annualize that, that's better than a return that Warren Buffett has gotten. That's you know probably better than Netflix, probably better than Microsoft, better than Google. Like you're, you're still doing okay. Uh, what does that mean to people who bought at all-time highs? Does that make them feel any better? No. Um, right. And I think there, you know, there are people who can't stomach the volatility, and you know, we can't get get flushed out. Um, I, it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, where it is in a month. I think if, if in a month it's below forty thousand, then I start may change my tune. I may, uh, you know, walk over to the Ed Harrison side of the camp. But uh, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> uh, you know, and so I think that's where we are. You know, it is uh, to me there's th there's that one aspect of it, uh, but there are other aspects of it which are uh, potentially uh, pernicious over the longer term. I think that uh, you guys know that I, what I talked about the regulatory side, and that's really yeah. what what's happening here is I think around the time that the beginning of the year happened, I was talking about fifty and a hundred thousand levels because a lot of people were throwing those terms out for Bitcoin. I, I, I said fifty, yes, a hundred thousand, no, meaning that once you get to fifty, the regulators are going to wake up. They're never going to allow it to go to a hundred thousand. Uh, for various reasons. I believe one of those reasons is obviously protecting uh, people. 
you know, from uh, speculative assets. Uh, and we see that both in China and the United States. And another yeah. is the space becomes so big that it becomes problematic for the, the control of uh, the financial system. So my view is the opposite of a lot of other people's views who are bullish. I think that there's going to be a lot of regulatory risk uh, once you get beyond the 50,000 level. We've already seen that, and they're going to reiterate and double down if we make another run uh, up further. So to me, that tells me that uh, when you think about it from a Metcalf's Law perspective, you know, the ability for these assets to continue the rate of adoption uh, becomes much more limited when there's limit more limited upside. And yeah. the last thing I would say is, is that it's also indicative of a fractured market. You know, as soon as uh, Elon Musk started talking about Dogecoin, uh, suddenly people were like, wait a minute, you know, there are these altcoins, let's start investing in these altcoins. Mm -hmm. That again, diminishes the, uh, the the network effects of of the likes of Bitcoin. And to me, that also is an impediment to upward momentum uh, in the space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm all over that that final point, Ed. I, and I, um, you know, I know we only have a few minutes left because Ash actually has to get to a very important discussion with Raul Pal, CEO of Real Vision, and Hugh Hendry about the exponential age that is going live at um, 5.30 p.m. So definitely stay tuned for that. And we'll, we'll at the end, we'll discuss a little bit more about that. But um, Ed, to your point about just all these Dogecoins and all these altcoins popping up, um, you know, the Bitcoin dominance index, that, that's been slowly going down as you've had this flourishing of altcoins. And, you know, altcoins, call it Ethereum and altcoin. Some Ethereum people would get offended. And I understand why, because it kind of is the, the ecosystem of the actual you know, the digital value layers that are being created, because things like Uniswap, things like, you, and all these decentralized exchanges are on them. And, and Ash is like nodding his head like, yeah, Jack, you're learning what I've, what I've known for years. Um, but, but um, you know, so you have that flourishing, but then you also kind of have a somewhat seedy underbelly. Um, and I don't want to be too judgmental, but I, I think there are definitely these coins um, that are not run by terribly scrupulous people uh, that are, don't have a, a specific purpose um, other than to you know pump coins, one thinks of coins like Come Rockets. Um, you know, Dogecoin is really only at the beginning. There's Come Rocket, there's Safe Moon, um, uh, you know, which is promoted by uh, Dave Portnoy. Um, there even even Joe Weisenthal, our, our um, you know our, our colleague in financial journalism, he has a coin. He doesn't own any of it, um, but it's someone made a coin named after him called like Stalwart. Um, and what there's one more coin, Scam Coin, Scam Coin. There's a coin called Scam Coin. So I think that a there's also Ask Coin, by the way, which is really get, getting a lift. <laughs> yeah, ask coin. Yeah, they missed one letter. It should have been uh, ask coin. But, but yeah, I think I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure Mr. Weisenthal would uh, disavow any uh, association with the coin. He doesn't own it. Someone made it uh, for him, kind of as a joke. Um, so much to say here, guys. I wish it's like we need two shows. We need like a double Real Vision Daily briefing. Uh, but I just want to jump in here because you guys both made some really important points about the broader context. But let me just give us um, the some of the news flow today, because I think this is really important. Uh, this is from uh, a gentleman named Li Hu, who is the uh, Chinese vice premier uh, who hosted uh, the Financial Stability Summit uh, and the Development Committee of the State Council uh, for China on Friday. This is coming to us via Coindesk from Amkar Godbol, who's a terrific uh, reporter who covers the technical aspects in the market uh, action on Bitcoin. Here's the quote from the Chinese regulators, quote, 
we should be more alert for potential risks, pretty vanilla statement, which regulators often say. But here, for me, is the killer. Quote, we should crack down on Bitcoin mining and yeah. activities and prevent individual risks from being passed to the whole society. That language certainly suggests a sense of escalation in the aggressiveness with which Chinese regulators are pursuing these markets uh, and probably something to think about in the price action we see today to Ed's points. Yeah, to me, that is, you know, that's not good, um, you know, because the Chinese miners are critical uh, to what's happening. And uh, if the Chinese government thinks that it's going to uh, take its remit, its re regulatory remit into that space as well, then who knows what's going to happen next. So that that definitely is to me, Ash, I think the 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 catalyst for what we're seeing today. Yeah, Ash, absolutely. I, a, I got a question for you. Is there a possibility that that could exert a somewhat a, a, you know, a negative uh, impact on the supply of Bitcoin, because that's how you know, Bitcoin is mined, and therefore actually be good for the price in the same way that mm. you know, regulation for the oil and gas industry actually has right. kind of helped the price of oil. You know, I mean, the fracking revolution, that was great for the bankers who made all those dodgy loans, but it actually, you know, the profit margins, you know, the oil companies did not do well over the past decade. decade. But, you know, oil now is, seems to have stabilized above $60 um, now that you have, you know, at least the potential possibility yeah. of regulation. So do you think that actually that could be, you know, takes take future Bitcoin out of circulation or is it it's going to disrupt the network and it actually is going to be bad? Jack, that is a fantastic question. And it's one that makes complete sense. In the weird world of digital assets, uh, supply does not quite look like the supply that we see uh, in tr the traditional asset space where you think about infrastructure coming online uh, to create things uh, like additional liquid natural gas uh, or oil because Bitcoin has something called a difficulty adjustment built into the algorithm. So as hash power moves off the grid, the difficulty adjustment uh, kicks in to maintain the algorithm uh, at a similar rate uh, of block time. So um, while that would be uh, a perfectly intuitive analysis uh, in the traditional asset space, in the weird counterintuitive world of digital assets, uh, it's not likely to have an impact on the supply side. Uh, because that is fixed by the schedule in the algorithm and moderated by the difficulty adjustment. Gentlemen, we've just blown through all of our time. We didn't have a chance uh, to uh, answer any of the questions uh, from the audience today, which I feel terrible about, uh, but we will be doing more of that in the future. Uh, and as Jack said, uh, Jack, why don't you tell the story? You're awesome at uh, explaining Real Vision content. Talk a little bit about what we're going to be doing right after this show. Okay, well, what is going to follow in but half an hour is going to be an experience that I think whether you're a subscriber of Real Vision or not, it's, it's going to be a real treat probably of your year. So everyone knows about Raoul's exponential uh, age thesis. He really changed his macro framework for you know, the first time in a, in a while, if not his entire career. Basically that you know, macro is what he calls dead. Uh, you're not going to see that volatility in the rates market, in the currency markets. The macro markets where people like Raoul, people like Hugh Hendry, many other macro fund managers, you know, Stan Druckenmiller, of course, sort of, you know, made, made their hay. Um, and because of that, the real opportunity with, um, you know, all these markets uh, suppressed, their volatility is suppressed, it's going to be the exponential technology trends, the most notable of which is crypto. So I, you know, so, someone floated the idea about me, you know, Raoul and Hugh, you'd be great to get that uh, discussion because 
Hugh, he comes from that world like Rao, and he may agree with Rao, Rao may convince him. Hugh may actually say, hey, wait a minute, I, uh, you know, I come from this macro world, macro is still alive, it's not dead to me. So I'm very interested to uh, hear what, what Hugh is going to say. You know, I actually spoke with Hugh on the phone earlier today, and he was preparing, and he, uh, you know, he's been doing his research on Bitcoin, and I'm sure he's got a lot of thoughts. So yeah, yeah. and by the way, moderated by none other than our, our favorite moderator, Ash Bennington. So I, I'm, I'm gonna be getting my popcorn out, I'm gonna be watching that. And by the way, if you, obviously this is gonna be viewed, uh, available to all Real Vision members, Pro, Blacklist, Plus, Essential, everyone can watch it. If you're not a member, uh, you should watch it. And you can, by uh, clicking on the link, you can sign up for $1 and get a tr watch yeah. it and get a, a trial for two weeks, which is a very good deal. We do not normally do that. Normally, we don't even do dollar trials at all. Um, so yeah, if the link, click the link that's in the description. And if it's not, uh, we will put it there soon. Yeah, absolutely, Jack. And Hugh, of course, is Hugh Hendry, uh, uh, one of the great uh, British hedge fund managers uh, of the last many years, uh, who is an incredibly insightful guy. Uh, some interesting things to say, of course, uh, as we talk about the European banking crisis, uh, one of the people who really made his bones uh, in the financial space uh, and in the financial media space became a major star uh, in 2011, talking about precisely those issues. As you say, uh, Jack, free on the platform, only on the platform, not on YouTube. All members go free. For everyone else, it's $1 uh, for a 14-day trial. You get access to a GMI report, uh, access to Slack, uh, and the chance to win thousands in exponential assets. We're doing a giveaway. That's right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I left the cherry to you. I just, I, I based in the Sunday, but I left the cherry to you. Nice. And all, of course, all, um, of course, uh, of course, all Real Vision subscribers. By the way, do you know how exclusive the blacklist is? Do you know what I just realized? I'm not on it. I saw like a thing on my thing it was like, upgrade, do you want to upgrade? I, I'm, I'm not there. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's actually not even the, the highest. Um, actually, I, I, don't, I don't know. But yeah, it's, it's, it's very elite because it's like events. It's not just, you know, filmed on video. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, the, it's the content is the same. It's for events and for things that we do uh, in addition on a private uh, networking basis. And uh, that really is the interesting thing about the blacklist. Um, so gentlemen, I know we have to jump here, but Ed, any final thoughts? No, uh, I'm, I'm just looking forward to seeing uh, what you had to say. I, I thought it was, uh, you, you were very diplomatic in terms of insightful. I think it's more like, you know, <laughs> you never know what you're gonna get. It's exciting. When you, if you like volatility, uh, he's your guy from uh, you know that perspective in terms of the financial markets because he definitely gives you uh, some um, some nuggets to chew on. Uh, yeah. So I, yeah. I'm really looking forward to that. It, it yeah, really I should is. say one yeah, one final point that I wanted to make here. I was pounding the table earlier about people talking to uh, professionals, uh, not because we don't believe in empowering people with information. That's what we do here at Real Vision. But it's so critical for people. And I want to say this now because there's so much volatility in this space. So many people like me are incredibly passionate about these assets. It's so important for people to talk to financial professionals so they can understand their risk tolerance, so they can understand their risks and objectives as they look forward, and so they can understand what their basic asset allocation is. And once you understand that, then you have the power uh, to empower yourself, to think for yourself, to make decisions for yourself. But please understand that lest people uh, can you know, be in a position where they don't want to be. And it's so important for people to do this responsibly. Well said. Yeah. Jack, Ed, always a pleasure. Looking forward to doing it again next week. Absolutely. And uh, I'll, I'll be watching you, Ash, in a few minutes. No pressure. Thanks, guys. <laughs>
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.